Welcome to the Becoming You podcast with your host, Rachel Wood. This podcast is designed to help you step into your greatest self with solo episodes with Rachel and her guests and their stories of becoming. Let's dive in. Hello, 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 my sweet friends. Welcome back to the Becoming You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Wood, and I am so excited because you guys, this week I have on my very own amazing, stunningly handsome husband, Stephen Wood. And I'm just going to give you guys the forewarning. We have our, we're recording this from our living room and our dog is sitting with us because he's a little high maintenance pepperoni. And so if you hear like wrestling sounds in the background, um, don't worry about it. That's, that's him doing his thing. Um, so without further ado, Steven, welcome to the show. Hello. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're here. This has been such a long time coming because I think that I really wanted to have you on the podcast like when I first started doing it, but I felt like the timing wasn't right because I know that you've got such incredible wisdom. Like you've been coaching me pretty much since like the first day that we met, Um, but you have so much incredible wisdom to offer and it's something that you do basically every single day that you go to work is help other people um, in so many ways. And so I'm just... I wanted it to be the right time, um, but I also wanted to have you share some of the things that you've been going through recently and what the new projects are coming up for both you and I. So welcome. So glad that you're here. Thank you. Okay. So I always start the podcast with a couple of like icebreaker questions, just fun kind of dumb questions that like help people get to know you a little bit, but are also just like help bring in the relatability. So let's do it. Okay. First question. What would be your last meal on earth? Ooh, probably my mom's shepherd's pie. What? I was like, so convinced you were going to say pizza. (laughs) Nope. Nope. I mean, pizza's right in there. Maybe pizza on top of the shepherd's pie, but shepherd's pie. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That's it? Just shepherd's pie? This is like your last meal on earth, man. Like, come on, what else? (laughs) What else? I mean, shepherd's pie is pretty filling, if if we're going to be honest. that's true. That's true. It's pretty filling. Um, What else? Well, I mean, pizza. Sure. Um, And I feel like the only other essential... Is like a burrito. Correct answer. <laughs> From a taco truck. It's, it's the only option. Correct. But yeah. Yes. All right. That's great. So next question. You have traveled a fair bit, but if you could travel anywhere in the world and praise be this will someday happen again post pandemic, where in the world would you like to travel to and why? Two locations. The first one solely because it's warm and tropical and beautiful and everything that I feel like a like ideal tropical vacation could be. And that's the Seychelles. Where are the Seychelles for those that don't know? 
Those are off the um, west coast of Africa. So. Okay. Where's yeah. the other place? <clears throat> For the not so tropical, but much more cultured place to go. I think generally Spain. Yes. This tri- I, that trip will happen. Yeah. For us. I, I think Spain. Yeah. Um, Madrid's probably a good starting point. Yeah. I've heard good things. We had friends that told us they didn't like Barcelona, but Madrid, I think would be a good place to start. Yeah. But I can't imagine that Barcelona is that bad. But anyways. Right. I think that's, those are both fantastic places and I feel fortunate to say that I'm your wife. So chances are if you're going to go there, I'm going to. <laughs> I really would like to go there. Yes. So we'll make it happen. Last question. What is your greatest pet peeve? Mm. That's a really good question. I feel like my greatest pet peeve is people who recognize that they are lacking in a specific piece of information. They can even identify what that piece of information is that they don't understand, yet they don't want to take the time to learn it, but would rather push it off onto someone else to figure it out for them. I feel like you just called out a lot of people on that one. (laughs) I mean, that's so good because we've talked about this a lot. Um, But I I think that's a really good one just because it parlays nicely into kind of what we're going to talk about today. so. So with that being said, let's kind of hop right into it. So apart from being my wonderful, amazing, super hot husband, tell us first who you are. Give us like the little, what does your Wikipedia page say? Okay. So my name's Stephen Wood. I'm 35 years old, Oregon born and raised, and I work in and for and with my family in a photo lab. And uh, I am a third generation photo lab almost owner. Not quite there yet, but we're working on it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I work in this photo lab. I used to be obsessed with photography um, and was even at a time a professional photographer myself, at least as a side gig. And I, at some point, I realized that I really just liked the lab side of things, which was basically the after the picture is captured, how do you make it prettier? And so I started focusing on that and focusing even more on Photoshop and image processing and things of that nature. 
Um, but my focus for really the last seven years or so has been on something I never thought I was even smart enough to do, which is computer programming. I, when I started down that path, I figured like I would just kind of bump along and maybe, maybe figure it out enough to, mm -hmm. just to solve some of the problems we were having in the lab. But I never figured it would be my actual everyday job. So. I think that's amazing. And so for those that don't know, if you're a, a youngin and you don't know what a photo lab is, a photo lab, because I just wanted to like throw it out there <laughs> for everybody that's over the age of, of 35, you probably know what a photo lab is. If you're under the age of 35, and you haven't picked up an actual film camera potentially in your life, like ever, um, photo labs were the places where you would drop off your film and they would give you back prints. Right. And if you don't know anything about film photography, there's, you can go watch a YouTube video on it, but basically photo vision, we can kind of tell the backstory on this. Yeah. Go ahead. You tell them. So the, the short version of photo vision is, um, it was a photo lab and camera store that my grandparents bought as an investment opportunity for um, ultimately and for a way to both keep my grandmother busy with something, but also to give them a way to pay for college for their four children. So in 1968, they decided to buy a photo lab, and um, it, I mean, it's been in the family ever since then. So uh, it's gone through my grandma and grandpa operating it, and then my dad, and now I'm working my way into that process as well. And it's so interesting, apart from it being a family and generational business, um, PhotoVision has, like any other photo lab that is still in existence today, because most of them have gone out of business, um, but like any photo lab that's still in existence today, you've had to do a lot of pivoting and a lot of changing as the industry has changed because technology has changed so much. Most people don't use film cameras anymore, obviously, except for your wonderful, amazing customers and clients. And with that, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this idea of resilience. So tell us about your experience with having to pivot and change and be comfortable with always having the rug ripped out from underneath you, essentially. I think that's actually a really great way to describe the feeling. So the, the photo industry, at least as long as I have been around, has gone through some sort of major shift about every 10 years. Um, that was like from black and white photography to color photography. Um, within our business, we went from a 
commercial like business to business model to a business to consumer model um, doing like one hour photo um, we went back towards well then we went to digital because film vanished in less than a few years and so we had to totally reinvent ourselves or go out of business which um, in the early 2000s business for the photo industry uh, it had a 50% attrition rate per year so every year 50% of the labs that were in existence went out of business every year that's so mind-blowing from about 2002 to 2008 can you and imagine then, other if other industries went out of business like that? That's insane. Well, I mean, that's that's like what the restaurant industry is trying to grapple with mm-hmm. right now. Except they're only having to go through it right now. We're not even a year into it. Yeah. Imagine doing that for six or seven years. And so, like, during that time, we, we were constantly reinventing ourselves. We had to. We had no choice. Um, and we've done that a couple more times. And here we are um, about seven, eight years into the current business model. And we can feel the tides are changing again. Mm-hmm. And the part that sucks this time is that this is the best business model we've ever had. And literally since 1968, this is the best, most profitable um, business model we've ever had. And it does feel like the rug is being pulled out from underneath us. Mm -hmm. And I but. think I think it's so interesting. I just wanted to like before you say your bet, I think it's so interesting and I wanted to highlight how amazing Photovision and all of your customers have been in terms of adapt- adaptability in the last year because the things that Photovision is experiencing in terms of the tides changing, it really doesn't have anything to do with the pandemic. Not no. Really. It's totally unrelated. And so the fact that you guys have otherwise like because their their customers, their businesses are completely events based, and so when the pandemic happened, that events based business, any event based business, obviously collapsed. It went away, and so Photovision was the kind of that like third person down the line from that, and you guys have just like you know done so well through it despite everything. And you've been really adaptable. Your customers have been really adaptable. And so I just wanted to like give you guys praise for that because it's, you know, it's hard to make those adjustments, but I think that you guys have made those adjustments otherwise so easily because of the (laughs) constant need for change that you've experienced over the years. So anyways, now go ahead, continue what you were going to say, but. Well, thank you first. Um, The but is that despite all of this change, despite feeling like this this thing that was stable is now 
being moved away from us and we can't control it, I'm actually really excited. And I think that's part of the trick to this whole resiliency thing. And maybe maybe I've figured this out just because I've lived with a business that literally is always changing. Um, and I, I feel like everyone's kind of gotten a taste of what that's like because of the pandemic and just like oh no that's taken away and oh no that other thing's taken away also um but for me where with a situation that could so easily just turn negative what i choose to look at is the potential of the future and what can be, not what I'm losing, but what I could possibly gain. Mm-hmm. And not just me, um, because like the success of photovision is not because of self-centeredness and what can we gain. It's because of the idea of how many people can we affect in a positive way. And... I have a really hard time understanding where that would ever be a negative thing. So if I can take this situation that's otherwise not good in the the classical sense because my cheese is being moved, so to speak, um, and I can instead look at it in terms of, well, how many more people can I help because of this change? Then it becomes okay. It's suddenly not about me anymore. It's not about what I get out of it. It's about what everyone else gets out of the possibility. Mm-hmm. And that's always a good thing. At least I think that's always a good thing. And uh, I guess that's the trick with it all is if you believe it, it's, it's good enough. Mm-hmm. I think that's so interesting because... Throughout, like, we've been together for eight years, and it's been so amazing to see how every single time a curveball gets thrown at you, um, you've been maybe a little nervous initially, but then pretty much, like, you pull yourself up and you're like, okay, well, we don't really have any other options, so I'm just going to do it. Programming was that beautiful example, and it's been, I think, more than anything, programming has, like beaten into you the necessity for change over and over and over again and that try fail try fail try fail try success maybe one every 10 15 20 times and I think that that's such an incredible virtue to have because like you were saying your biggest pet peeve is that when somebody identifies a problem and then they're unwilling to go you know seek out the answers to to solve it it is frustrating. And so I think that, but I think that's truly a skill. Resilience is a skill, even though we are, you know, we as humans, if we weren't resilient, we wouldn't be here in the first place. But that necessity of being required to change is such an important skill. And it's something that can truly propel you forward in improving not only the lives of others, but even the quality of your own life. So 
Tell me about the biggest struggles that you've personally faced when trying to overcome blocks, barriers. <laughs> and I know that there's you could talk about them in a variety of different ways. But... Oh, my. Um, okay. <laughs> so uh, why don't I start with the, the event that put me on this track in the first place, which we got to go all the way back to my junior year of high school um in which i didn't realize at the time but uh my perfectionism had pushed me to a point where i was absolutely like clinically depressed suicidal and on top of that all, as a perfectionist and a people pleaser, I was failing seven out of eight of my classes, like fully, straight across the board, Fs. And that was a huge blow to my ego. Um, it was the moment my my world basically came crashing down. And when I say my world came crashing down, what I mean is the story that I narrate about my life, my daily life, the, the meanings that I bring into everything that happens, um, it, it all shattered all at once. I had this narrative that, um, that I was a perfectionist and that I could do it. And up until that point, my grades had pretty well supported that. I had a 3.7, 3.8 GPA. Um, school was easy. Everything just kind of happened without me having to work too hard at it. And I was likable enough by my peers. And then all of a sudden, it didn't work anymore. I kept doing the thing I had done before, but I wasn't getting the good results like I had gotten before. And so that caused a bit of panic that I just staved off with more storytelling to myself that it would be okay if I just like tried harder and did the same thing more. Turns out that doesn't work. <laughs> Isn't that the definition That's, of insanity? Right, right. <laughs> and, um, and the, the six week report card coming home in the mail to my parents saying your son is failing all but one of his classes was kind of like the the ceiling of the deal, so to speak. It's That was the moment I could no longer deny that reality was different from what I was telling myself. Mm -hmm. And that set off this big, long process um, that was me learning to grapple with both my perfectionist, people-pleasing tendencies and 
um, eventually my awareness of this story that I was telling myself every day about me and about my life, my decisions, every everyone else's decisions, everything. And it that event took me now, oh gosh, another four years worth of like off and on oscillation of suicidal depression and an okay-ish existence for me to come to the point of enough is enough. And that's when I started really playing around with this idea of the story. And um, I, I read a book that will forever be the thing that changed my life, and that's Eckhart Tolle's The Power of Now. And within that book, he he basically described and like called me out on all of my BS and and presented it in a way that was like, hey, I mean, you're you're telling yourself this story. Mm-hmm. It's a story. Mm-hmm. So if we can just assume that it's a story and we like we choose to believe it, couldn't I just tell myself a different story that's more beneficial to myself? And that's what I started doing. And so like the resiliency comes in from like recognizing what reality is, just the facts, not putting any sort of spin on it, no extra, well, this fact means this other thing about me, nothing like that. Just like, okay, here's the facts. What do I want to believe about those? What's going to be good for me to believe about those? And then how do I move forward from that? I think that's so good just because if you take that idea and then you apply it to circumstances that arise in your life that maybe upon first glance seen as negative or seen as a misfortune and then most people would, you know, reel in fear and that's a very normal and typical response. But then if you're able to hold yourself back from reeling into fear and, you know, doing nothing, then you can, you know, evaluate these circumstances that have been presented to you. And like you said, propel forward. What is the thing that motivates you to continue this forward momentum of change, of being open to and accepting of change? I think that comes from the fact that I get bored easily. (laughs) If we're just being honest, um, I am not one who could sit and do the same thing day in, day out, every day for decades. I couldn't, it, it would drive me nuts. So change for me is actually kind of essential to my own mental health. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't always. Before I went through this process of uh, understanding that I, I have this story I tell myself every day, I didn't want change 
at all. I wanted everything to stay the same because when it's the same, it's predictable and understandable and it's safe. Mm-hmm. But today I'm like, I, I have to change. I just have to. I feel like part of that is brought on because we're in this world that doesn't really allow you to stay static. It it doesn't allow for you to, to just go, you know, nothing around me gets to change. Right? Because we're mid-pandemic and, well, that was a change. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Uh, yeah, and I think that's a, a, a big understatement. But, like, the world is in motion constantly. To try to get my, my immediate world to be the same always is an exercise in futility. It's not going to happen. It's not possible because everything is always in motion. So the more I can lean into just going with that motion, the better off I am. Mm -hmm. The less resistance I will have to whatever reality is. Mm -hmm. And that's really the key to me not falling back into a depression. I think that's important to bring up because I I have a family history of of depression and mental health disorders and I if I am not constantly leaning into that change is okay and I'm still safe within this process of change then I very quickly become depressed. Mm-hmm. Like it it just it doesn't take long. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you just have to go with it. I totally agree with that. And I'm so much like Steven. This year has tested my limits in terms of not necessarily like needing to lean into the change, but the experience of the Groundhog Day. That was the thing that I came that came forward for me. And and I think it is that so many of us are feeling that way instead of having the kind of variety that we did have the change has been in the no change the change has been it's been shifted to monotony and that's a challenge but I think also that's forced us to get um, creative in micro ways as opposed to macro ways Um, like Stephen and I had started doing puzzles a few weeks back we've got a Star Wars puzzle on our coffee table right now and I think it's great and it's you know obviously brought us all of us a little bit closer to either the people that we live with or with our families in general. So I think that's so cool and such an interesting thing. And you made me think of like, start thinking about like quantum mechanics and how like not being willing to change is physically impossible. If you want to talk about like the physics of it all and time and blah, blah, blah. We'll talk, we'll save that for another day though. So one of the things that I know about you is that you love more than anything in the world to solve problems and find solutions. Tell I me do. why. Um, well, <laughs> I, I, I think to, I think a lot of programmers will relate to this same thing. 
and it doesn't sound good, but it's kind of the truth, and it's that ultimately I'm lazy. <laughs> like, that's the truth. I'm lazy. Um, and I would rather a machine do the thing for me than me do it a thousand times. Yes. So, like, I, I love solving problems because I find an immense amount of joy out of being able to understand a problem well enough to explain how to do it to a machine so that the machine can do it for me. Beautiful. So, with that being said, though... I just want to have like a moment. Let's have a technology moment. Let's talk about automation. And Ooh. I want to know, yeah, I want to know your thoughts on it and like where you see the, not just the United States, but the world going in terms of automation. Cause there's this kind of big, scary narrative, I think in the media about automation and how it's going to take away all these jobs and blah, 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 and how this is going to be such a big problem and all this stuff. And I know that you and I have talked about it. Um, a bit, but I want to hear, I want the listeners to hear your thoughts about automation and how, um, how you're viewing it. Sure. So automation, I think is a wonderful thing. Uh, the, the trouble with it is that it is going to take away thousands of jobs, not not actually not just thousands of jobs, tens of thousands of jobs, maybe even hundreds of thousands of jobs. And that is like change inevitable. It is. Um, I was just reading an article about some new technological advances with a substance called graphene that is going to replace common semiconductors and it'll make computers a thousand times faster than they are today a thousand (laughs) times faster bring it on baby and when that happens there is going to be a level of automatability to the world that has never been accessible before because of the time constraints on processing. Um, So when that happens, we're going to see a lot more get automated a lot faster. And it will be a lot cheaper to do than it is today. So these things are inevitable. But... This comes back to the story we tell ourselves. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? It's obviously a bad thing if we're just going to talk about uh, families having income displaced by computers and by robot machines that never get tired, never have to stop, and will almost always do their task perfectly, like that can be scary. But society really has a decision that we will have to make. There's no not making this decision. Um, And so there's two paths that we can go. One is figuring out 
how we value human life and, and one's entire life experience with the absence of necessary societal work. If we've following the current model, everyone has to pull their weight um, and that's basically what buys their ability to continue living. Mm -hmm. But what happens if the machines are literally doing all of the things required for everyone to just go on living? And this is the conundrum we're in where, where capitalism in its current form stops working because no one figured robots were going to be able to do a human's job. But yet, here we are. Here like, we are. It, it's coming. And so I'm just curious, really, how long does it take for society to recognize that everyone who's living has a right to, to housing and food and shelter and basic comforts. I'm not saying everyone should be living in a mansion, but um, if we have robotic farming systems that can require dramatically less labor and still get the same amount of food to everyone, then that kind of takes care of that that uh, problem. Mm-hmm. We can move on to solving other problems altogether. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we need to get society to, is recognizing there are better fundamental problems for us to be solving than who picks the food out in the fields. Mm-hmm. We can be beyond that. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's so crazy, like... It almost makes me think of like, you could think of it like this. You can either think of the world as being like something like Tomorrowland, or you can think of it as being like Divergent. <laughs> One yeah, of the two. It, it, exactly. Exactly. One of the two. But like a, a, a perfect example of where a lot of people have totally become okay with robots doing a thing that was otherwise reserved for people is the Roomba. Mm-hmm. Totally. People love their robots. We're totally fine with a robot going around vacuuming our house and cleaning up our floors. Why? Because who really likes doing it? Nobody. Nobody. But yet there are people who get paid to do it every day. Mm-hmm. And it's yet amazing. we're also happy that there's this robot thing that can take that away from us Mm -hmm. so like it's literally whatever field we look at and especially like uh with tesla and the tesla semi and autonomous driving like the trucking industry is probably going to be one of the first to have to grapple with this um and there are honestly just there's better things and a better life for people than sitting in a truck watching a road for 14 hours at a time for 14 hours at a time or however long you're legally allowed to drive i don't know what the cutoff is i think it's something like 14 hours it's a long time yeah it's a long time but there's literally better things for them to be doing Mm -hmm. 
And I, I think there will always be a place for people who just genuinely really want to do something like that. But I don't think it has to be that we have to have people doing it. Mm-hmm. I think it'll be interesting to, like you said, have that conversation of how are we equating human value with human productivity? Because those are two very different things. And right now in our capitalist culture, we equate those two things together um, in so many ways, not explicitly or exclusively, but in so many ways, those two things are equated to each other, Um, especially when it means that you're trying to survive in this world where you have to go and make your money. Right. I, I will add to that, that I, I'm not advocating for a communist society <laughs> or, no. or a socialist society in, in absolute terms or anything like that. Uh, I think capitalism is actually a, an incredible model for producing innovation. Oh, absolutely. And so I, I don't think like this idea that we can just throw it out altogether is um, how we're going to be able to move forward. But it does need some modifications. Mm-hmm, for sure. I know we could have this discussion literally all day long, totally. but we'll move on. Okay. So speaking of automation, tell me about the scanner. I mean, I know about the scanner, but tell the listeners about the scanner, what inspired it, and how did you identify that this machine needed to be made? That's our dog walking <laughs> across the floor. Okay. So, uh, yeah, speaking of robots, we're building a robot yes, we to are. automate a process that uh, I've actually done for years and years and years manually. And that's digitizing of artwork for reproduction purposes. Yeah, so we're, we're building this scanner. Um, I'm utilizing all of my programming skills that I've learned from literally just failing at it every day for eight hours a day mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, combining that with my interest in photography and uh, and robots and erector sets and things like that and Um, We're making a system that takes thousands of pictures of artwork and then stitches them all back together into a really high-resolution digital copy. That's so amazing. And so just for the listener's sake, for like something like a 36 by 36 painting, that's what I came up with because that's what I've got in my studio right now. Yeah. Doing it the old way, the way that you had, you guys had always done it, and every other person across the country that does art reproduction capturing, how long would a 36 by 36 have taken you? And how much would you have gotten paid for it? So for just the capture time, uh, that's probably half an hour. Okay. If you could... If you had a really big studio space and preset lights, you could do it in a matter of minutes. But 
you'd have to have a really big studio space, everything preset, ready to go. That's not how most <laughs> art reproduction uh, setups ever are. It's always a take it down, put it up. Takes yeah. a long time to get it all set up. So and then have to take it down when you. So done. if you are like most art reproduction houses, you have to set up your lighting and almost everything else about your shooting space for the specific piece of artwork and how it reflects light, most importantly. And this system basically erases all of those technical difficulties and produces a way to scan artwork in an area that is only slightly larger than what the artwork's physical dimensions are. And it does it in a way that is ultimately extremely repeatable. That's the other problem art reproduction houses have is that there is there are huge elaborate software systems <laughs> around trying to make things reproducible from one art piece to the next but ultimately everything is changing in between when you're photographing those pieces unless they're literally like back to back. So the system again like it just removes most of those variables from even being a concern. It's so amazing, you guys. I have I am not a programmer. I am not even a tech what I would consider to be a very tech savvy person. I get by. But the stuff that Steven is doing to be able to build this thing is mind-blowing. And I'll just say, there's a lot of math involved. And quite frankly, based on his experience and the industry that he's so unbelievably familiar with, he is like the perfect person to build this thing. I feel like I got to be the luckiest person. I'm the luckiest artist in the world because my husband is going to be building this thing. So artists out there, if you make stuff that is larger than what can fit on a little, little 20, 18 by 24 scanner, little Epson scanner, whatever, then come and talk to us. But anyways, besides that, after you build the art scanner, apart from iterations that you will make of it, what is the next thing that you want to build? What's the next robot that you want to build? So... I actually want to build another scanner um, purely for the just the joy of building imaging systems. Um, I actually want to build a photographic film scanner uh, because that's that's what Photovision does. We scan photographic film and we're busy making a big push towards scanning 35 millimeter film uh, for just everyday use. And the scanners we have, they're literally 20 years old. And like, seriously, they run, and I know this is nerdy, <laughs> I apologize, but they run on Windows 2000. Like, 
I'm not okay. I may not be nerdy, but or at least I don't think myself to be. But like, y'all, can you imagine if you were still using a computer that was running on Windows 2000? Like, you would have chucked that thing in the trash a decade ago, a, like so long ago, and they're still using scanners. Tell tell the people why. Why are you still using that scanner with that software? So we're using that particular scanner with that software because literally nothing else has been made since then that does what we need it to do. Despite the fact that the the photographic imaging industry is one of the fastest moving industries out there and you can all see it because you you all have uh, a camera in your phone in your pocket and 10 years ago that was hardly even a thing Mm -hmm. and so like it's despite all of the the advancements like everything that instagram has done like the ability to do like video filters and all of that stuff it's wild how fast it's it's all changed but then when it comes to actually just scanning a piece of film making a photographic image into something digital the equipment to do it is 20 years old so I would love to have a a film scanner with modern capabilities. And this is honestly one of the things that I love most about you because clearly nobody else is chomping at the bit to build a new scanner. Clearly. But I love it because even with the changes that are coming in the photo and photo finishing industry, this zeal that you have to to adapt and to change and to just like go into the unknown is truly one of the things that I love most about you you are such a capable person and part of this comes truly down to like your stubbornness Um, (laughs) but once you kind of get your mind around there's this problem that has every right to be solved and I think that I can solve it so I'm gonna do it And that's what you've been doing at PhotoVision every day since the day that I met you. And I applaud you deeply for that. And it also just speaks to the success that I know that you and I are going to have together going into the future. I don't know how that, I don't know how you wouldn't be successful, quite frankly. Well, thank you. It's, you know, as I think about it more, I think it comes down to, at my core, I love adventure. I always have. I've always been fascinated by new experiences. And so, like, problem solving is just a, another form of going on an adventure. Mm-hmm. And I think the most interesting thing about, like, building programs and building... Uh, robots is that it forces me every day to confront the 
parts of me that want to make everything perfect. Mm. And so coming back to that resilience piece, the practice of programming is literally the practice of failing until you you finally make it. In fact, the, the programming world even has a name called for it it's called test driven development and it literally is the process of failing until you get it right and then failing more until you get it right again that's amazing it's such a it kind of it, it makes me think it, that it's like this very meditative practice almost like you know how many barrels of water do you need to carry every single day in order to like kind of beat this not so great part of our nature out of us to just tell us to calm down get over ourselves we're still moving forward but like let's let's push this ugly piece of ourselves ugly part of our humanity like we're gonna nip it in the bud right right here and now right <laughs> it's uh, uh in in Eckhart Tolle's words it is the process of dying to yourself mm-hmm. It's just pure irony to me that um, the thing I became fascinated with is programming, which is literally just me dying, to my (laughs) ego dying to to itself over and over again as I can do nothing but fail and fail and fail until I get it right. Mm -hmm. And that is truly the definition of what creates resilience in people. Okay, so the last question I have for you is, and maybe the film scanner is this, but if it's not, I'll be really curious to know the answer to it. So what is your dream, like, machine job venture? Like, if you had it your way and you had basically unlimited amounts of cash, like, what would be the thing that you would be like, I'm going to go out and do or build blank? Wow. I know. That's a really hard question to answer probably, but I figured I would ask because I've never actually asked you this before. I was going to say, I don't think you even have a clue what I'm about to say. I don't. Probably not. But it's going to make sense in a second. If I had unlimited amounts of cash to go out and just build a thing with all of my random acquired knowledge today, it would be an energy-efficient security, digital security-forward smart home. Because the home is the ultimate machine. For us, I mean, it is mm-hmm. it is the machine that no matter what you use every single day, mm-hmm. it's the one that keeps us safe. It's the, the one that provides us comfort and joy in many cases. It's, it should do it all. But like, like we were talking about earlier tonight, there's this horrendous cost in homes and the building of homes and 
all of the systems that go into supporting a functioning home. And I just feel like there has to be a better way, even though we've been building houses for millennia, literally <laughs> millennia. There's got to be a better way. I think they had it right down in Cozumel where they would just take shards of broken glass and put it on the tops of the retaining walls around the houses. You know, it makes a good fence. (laughs) Makes a good fence. But no, I totally get why you say that. And I hope you don't find this like, I don't know, weird or whatever, but I totally think that you're going to have the, actually have the opportunity to do that because that's something that we've talked about for for all y'all, because you don't know our our conversations at home, we talk about that stuff all the time. Stephen and I are both obsessed with the idea of maybe not quite so much tiny living, but small living, and we're also really really interested in, like Stephen said, trying to make it as comfortable and efficient and and essentially make a whole heck of a lot of sense in terms of just the day-to-day of both how you're living in the space and all of the things that the space does for you. So I think that you're 100% totally going to have the opportunity to build your perfect smart home in the future. At least that's my hope. I certainly hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, honey, for coming on the podcast. This was really, really great. I am constantly amazed by the level of knowledge that you have, like you said, about whether it's about random facts or it's about programming or math or physics or even quantum mechanics. Like, you know so much, and it's it's a truly a pleasure to be able to have the conversations with you that I do. And I'm really excited to for us to continue to share with everybody what you're doing with the Skinner because, like, let's be real friends. He's the really the one that's building it. let's be honest and I just want other people to be able to see the really really cool things that you're doing but more than that just if you take anything away from this podcast today take away what Steven said about this necessity for change and that you can choose the narrative that you want to have about whether or not it gets to be good or bad for you So thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate you. And in case I know you, Stephen is very like anti-social media. That's cool. Whatever, whatever's clever, man. But if in case somebody wanted to, you know, send work to PhotoVision or if they wanted to, you know, talk to you or if they're a photographer that's listening to this, how might they get in touch with you that way? Sure. Um, So I'm... I'm probably the world's worst social media user now. Um, An accomplishment. Right. But uh, if you were as daring as to send me an Instagram DM, that's what you call it, right? Yep. Uh, My handle is at underscore Stephen Wood, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-W-O-O-D. Um, and otherwise you can email me at Stephen at photovisionprints.com. Cool, man. And you talk to the people, photographers, your lovely customers, when they need to talk to you, they do this awesome thing. They schedule an appointment 
to talk to you over the phone. It's yeah. like this insanely awesome service that PhotoVision provides. And you can catch them over to on their Instagram handles at PhotoVision Prints and at PhotoVision Insights, correct? Yes. Yeah. Uh, PhotoVision underscore Insight. Cool. They're both great. And there's also lots and lots of pretty pictures, so you should go and follow them. All right. Thank you again. And we will see you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.